If you need a new roof or a repair, Easton Roofing will take care of you. Estimates are always free and suggestions are built on integrity. Visit EastonRoofing.com for more information. Get back to business faster with Easton Roofing. Easton Roofing. Integrity matters. Crunch time. Crunch time. You're listening to Crunch Time on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Crunch time. Crunch time. All righty, Kansas City, welcome to Crunch Time. That's right, Crunch Time. Tim Brunhart, Frank Bowl, the Super Bowl victory edition. Frank, how's that sound? Well, that sounds pretty good. Two in the last, what, four years? Not, not a bad deal for this football team. Nice, very nice. Unbelievable stuff. I want to thank our great sponsors, CBD America Shaman, and, of course, First couple days, uh, I know that there was some talk out there, but about 38% off for Monday and Tuesday. But we came on Wednesday just so we can give you another day of discount. So if you pop over to a CBD American Shaman store right now, you get 30% off all products all over the store. I want to thank our great sponsors. They are just a great Kansas City company. You want your water solubles, your gummies, your uh, topical creams, sleep aids, energy C- CBG as we get these kind of cloudy days and kind of just down and out a little bit. Nothing wrong with sparking up a little bit with some CBG. And then when you're ready to go to sleep, a little Delta 8 or Delta 9 or even the CGN, CBN, which is a great product too, Frank. I know that uh, you also take advantage of these products and uh, as we kind of get you know, when football's over in Kansas City, it's right around Valentine's Day, and Valentine's <laughs> Day equals what? That equals spring is right around the corner in golf season. I know you play all the time. I loved your tweet the other day that I think you played on Super Bowl Sunday, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I, you know, I'm not going to sit around and watch all those pregame shows. They've done two weeks of all the crap for two weeks up going up to the game. I said, man, I go four or five hours, go outside. Play, play a little golf, have a beer afterwards with my friends, go home. I got home, I think, at 5, and so I was a half hour out, and it was just or it was more like 45 minutes out. But I thought the game was going to start about 5.30. It was perfect. Fixed myself uh, something to eat, and Sarah and I sat down. We watched Super Bowl, and that's that's about – that was it was perfect. I mean, everything worked out great. All right, so tell us what did uh, the princess cook for her little prince uh, for the Super Bowl, I know you guys probably have uh, a, a tradition that you guys uh, uh, partake in. I know that you know you're a guy of traditions. You've been around for a long time, Frank. I know you do the the uh, uh, fried turkeys on Thanksgiving, and That's I know right. you guys deep fries, Christmas uh, 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 different traditions. How about you with the Super Bowl? You you you've been around a lot of Super Bowls. Anything special you guys did? Oh yeah, it was perfect. It was a uh, it was a uh, a chicken breast sandwich uh, on rye. That was it. <laughs> we made it real easy. Just a little sliced chicken breast meat, and uh, you know, throw on a little little uh, hot mustard on there, and uh, throw some cheese on top, and put a little few chips on the side, a little dip over there, and it was just absolutely perfect. So there you go. Yeah, Sarah and I watched the game. Had my mom come over as I I came back to Kansas City. Uh, to do an event at the uh, Vineyard Church uh, up in the Northland, not too far from the airport. I had a wonderful day with those people up there. 
Uh, got there around 8 o'clock in the morning until uh, about uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And then Sarah and I took Barley for a long walk. And uh, just, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I watched the golf tournament uh, up until just about oh, yeah. the time for the Super Bowl to start. I get worn out. You know, you and I, I mean, uh, we're just like everybody else. I mean, we watch all the coverage and everything else. But by the time it gets to the Super Bowl, I mean, they've talked about everything to nausea. I mean, I just can't watch it anymore, especially – when you cover the game, I mean, you and I, we do radio. And then, of course, we, you know, have to uh, do our homework in order to do the show. So, I mean, just I was just ready for the damn football game to start. And when it did start, Frank, I guess we could start with that. Uh, you know, I thought the Chiefs and the Eagles uh, both started out pretty well. Uh, the Eagles did a really good job of time of possession. They uh, kept uh, uh, Patrick Mahomes as a Gatorade player on the sideline most of the first half and even part of the second half. I mean, they did a really good job of, of driving uh, down the field and, and, and getting first downs and eating up clock. But Frank, and I thought it was interesting because I turned to Sarah when it happened and I said, that was the key right there. And that was that 17 play drive. That was about eight minutes long. It had to settle for a field goal. And I think the wide receiver for, uh, the Eagles even said the same thing. I think uh, Brown, I can't think of his first name. AJ, right AJ Brown. Yeah. AJ Brown said he looked at his buddy and said, hey, we just lost the game. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, you know, we talked about it. You know, you listen to this show, Frank, and you've been covering football for a long, long time. And I played and coached for a long, long time. And there's certain keys, certain things you look for. And when you can get a team to kick a field goal in a long drive like that, it is demoralizing uh, and – it also it also sparks up everybody on your side of the sideline. Your thoughts on the beginning of the game and, and some of the things that happened. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the keys in the game. And of course, uh, you know when uh, Jalen Hurts inadvertently dropped that football, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know we had the scoop and score by Nick Bolton. That was uh, obviously a big big game. But their their game plan worked. Okay, their game plan virtually worked the whole the whole game. They ate up a lot of clock. They scored some touchdowns. They had to kick that field goal. You don't want to kick field goals in situations like that. But their game plan was working against the Chiefs. Hey, let's face it. It was 35-35 with eight seconds to play. Okay, so uh, you know what I mean? And then the Chiefs kicked the field goal, obviously, and won the football game 38-35. But their their strategy worked against Kansas City Chiefs, and that was that was the key for them. They knew they couldn't shut the Chiefs out, so they wanted to limit them to as few possessions as they possibly could during the game, and that's the only way to do it. And I I give credit to Nick Sirianni and his, and his staff. Both his offensive and defensive coordinators are gone. Okay, they they now have new jobs, which is absolutely crazy. And Eric Bieniemy can't get a job, but we'll talk about that maybe at a different time or whatever. But the, the, the Eagles' game plan worked perfectly. If uh, they hadn't fumbled the ball, uh, the game, uh, they'd, be, they'd be having a parade in Philadelphia today. Yeah, and, you know, that's nothing against the Chiefs and the way they play. No, it's not. Absolutely. They were two very uh, – competitively, they're two very close football teams. They were both great. I mean, everybody wants to think the Chiefs are just far and away. And I heard so many times, you know, Chiefs going to win by double digits. I'm, I'm just going, no, they're not. They're not going to win by double digits. And I know you could make up scenarios where, well, you know, if this would have happened and that would happen, that almost happened. Well, this almost happened. It didn't happen. It ended up 
And that's that's how competitive these two teams were. One giant mistake. Uh, and then, of course, the doink field goal by the Chiefs as well. But one giant mistake by the Eagles was the difference in the game. And that's what you play for. You play for when you're in games like this, Tim. You've been in games like this. You play to have that team make a mistake and you don't make that giant major mistake. You're not going to play a flawless football game. Just doesn't happen. You're going to miss blocks. You're going to miss tackles. You're going to just miss tipping a pass away from somebody and they score a touchdown instead. These things are going to happen. It's how you respond and what you do. But I think they knew from the beginning and so did Eagles it was going to be nip and tuck the whole way. Yeah, Frank, and I think a good point for everybody out there that maybe has never heard this before, but um, this this is really um, a key. If you're a, a coach, uh, if you're a player, or you're anybody that is involved with a, a football organization, um, there is a constant that happens when you play these kind of games. And that is that it's going to be one or two plays that are the difference makers. And you never know when those plays are going to happen. Um, it, it is as close as that. And that's why the NFL is so great, and that's why it's so hard to win. Uh, that's why when you have two great staffs and two great teams, it comes down to a couple different plays of this in the in the game, and you hope that those plays go your way. And the key is, when you're a coach, is to motivate your players to play every play because you just don't know. You just don't know when that play is going to happen, and you got to be prepared, and you got to be ready, and you got to be willing. And you gotta have a, a game plan, and you gotta understand the scheme, and you got you can't have misassignments and mental errors when it comes to that play. And if you look at that game, it came down to maybe three plays. Number one, uh, the turnover uh, from Jalen Hurts. Number two, the holding call on was it Bradbury? That was his name, right? Yes, Bradbury. The only holding call of the entire football game. The only holding call. Unbelievable. And then number three, uh, I'll, I'll lean on you for this one. I, you, could, you could say it was the hold uh, on the uh, long drive. You could say it was the missed field goal from Butker. Um, you know, it, the third one isn't as uh, uh, obvious as the first two. But it really, I mean, that, that's the crazy thing. And uh, that's why coaching football could be so frustrating at times. And, and, and listen, Nick Sirianni did an unbelievable job uh, of coaching up this team and keeping, keeping that team focused all year round and uh, doing a great job of, of putting together a game plan. But he got his ass kicked by Andy Reid. It's as simple as that. Oh, second half especially. Second, the adjustments that were made in the second half when when you have wide open guys for touchdowns, that is creative genius. When you, you know, limit the running game of the Eagles uh, like they did, and Spags, I know wasn't thrilled with the way they played, but they played good enough. Uh, but with the adjustments, like you said, Frank, in the second half were great. We'll talk about the offensive line and defensive line play maybe in the second segment. I got some thoughts on why they played so well, but your thoughts on those adjustments were made at halftime? I just Andy just uh, outcoached him, and I when we went into the game, my final prediction was twenty eight twenty seven Kansas City. 
when we talked about this last Thursday, but the the innovation of Andy Reid bringing back stuff he used to run at San Jose State. <laughs> what you know when he's got the two backs in the backfield and that sprung Pacheco on that one run around the end and there was no one there and he got really hit. He got really low tackled and he got his legs taken off from underneath him. Really landed hard. That was a hard hit, but he ended up getting a first on there and you know continuing on for the Chiefs and just pulling those things out and not being afraid to use them. You know they weren't up thirty-one to ten. Okay, you know what I mean? They were in the middle of a battle with the Philadelphia Eagles, and he's pulling these plays out. And the amazing thing is, the co- the whole coaching thing for me is, when he calls the play, sends it in, the players know what the play is. They haven't run the thing in like three years. You know, and he pulls something out of the playbook and says, here's this play, this kind of stuff we work on on Fridays, and here's some of the stuff we do. And he pulls these plays out of nowhere, and the players – not only remember them, they execute them and, and do it beautifully, and that's uh, that's a, a tribute to him. The other huge coaching thing for me was Jarrett McKinnon has a wide-open spot to go in for a touchdown there at the end of the game. I think would have given the Eagles. Eagles would have had about a minute and 40 seconds, a minute and 30 seconds or whatever, get the ball back. And uh, But McKinnon stops right at the goal line and drops. I mean, they practice that every week. I think Andy Reid gave Eric Bieniemy a lot of credit for that, having he, these players well aware. I'm sure the quarterbacks in the huddle going, look, they're going to let you score because they want you to score so they can get the ball back and try try to go down to the end of the field but before the game's over. So don't score. Imagine how tempting that is. I mean, that may never happen for McKinnon again. He may never have an opportunity to score in another game like the Super Bowl. I mean, and he just stopped and dropped because, Tim, you talk about this all the time. This is a team football game. This is not about individual stats or being able to tell your grandkids, uh, you know, what you, you know, that you scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. The best thing you can tell your grandkids and your kids at that point is, look what I did. That's all about the team. That's what this game's all about. And I think that exemplified this football team for the entire season was a team. A lot of young guys running around back there uh, playing their hearts out. A lot of guys who were back from the Super Bowl uh, team from a couple years ago. Uh, Those guys helping the young guys get squared away and just the ups and downs of the season and ending up with three losses when it's all over and another Super Bowl trophy uh, in the Kansas City Hall of Fame. Yeah, let me let me touch real quick on that touchdown because you're exactly right, Frank. McKinnon being unselfish. Um, you know, not worried about his self. It's we, not me. Uh, that was a, that was a uh, uh, an awesome, awesome display of, of teamwork. And if you don't think it's important, well, I know you do. All right, so I'm not. I, let me rephrase that. It is um, every kid's dream to score a touchdown in the Super Bowl. All right, so it's really important uh, to score a touchdown if you have the opportunity to do that. Uh, but for him to put team first and not score, that's a bigger moment than you can imagine. Because I, I just want to give you an example. In 1985, the Chicago Bears playing against the Patriots. Walter Payton, oh, yeah. who was probably the best running back for a generation uh, in the NFL, uh, led the league in rushing. I think he had the, uh, rushing, the most yards rushing at one point in his career uh, ever in the NFL. Uh, played on a lot of really, really, really bad football teams. Uh, 
teams that maybe won three or four games all year. But he always led the league in rushing. So when they finally got good with Ditka and, and Buddy Ryan and that defense, um, they go to the Super Bowl, and everybody wanted Walter Payton to score a touchdown. All right? And Walter Payton wanted to score a touchdown. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and uh, they gave the ball in a short yardage situation to William the Refrigerator Perry for a touchdown. That hurt Walter Payton. Now, Walter Payton never uh, complained about it. Walter Payton never uh, moaned about it. Um, but it hurt him deeply. And I know that for a fact because I know people uh, that were close to him very well, and it broke his heart. So for McKinnon to do that uh, is amazing. It's more even amazing than you can ever imagine because that's every running back, every football player's dream is to um, is to score a touchdown in the Super Bowl and to win a Super Bowl. Uh, now, he won the Super Bowl and so did Walker, but, you know, in the back of their minds, and I think McKinnon maybe, you know, he can he can understand it more, and you know what, and and he got a lot of credit for what he did. But Walter Payton, I mean, always in the back of his mind, just felt like you know I never scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl, and I carried this team for many many years. Uh, so it's that important, Frank, and people still talk about it. Oh yeah, and I, he was hurt. That hurt him, and he was upset at Ditka, and like a lot of people were because he could have easily given that ball to Walt, uh, Walter Payton. I just think he had a trick play up his sleeve. He thought it'd be cute, so he runs the refrigerator for the touchdown instead of giving that ball to Walter Payton. I was, you know, everybody was extremely disappointed. I think when it happened, everybody thought, oh, that's really cool, man, the fridge. And then the more you thought about it, the more you went, wow, that really that really wasn't the thing to do for Ditka. I know they won the game, uh, but they would have won the game. Payton would have scored as well. So it wasn't that type of thing. It was a short yardage situation at the goal line, and Walter Payton was going to score as well. So uh, that so was we're, really. You know, we're, we're bringing this up. People are saying, what the hell are you talking about? The 85 Super Bowl. Yeah, right. Well, I know. I know. <laughs> but the reality it's okay. Is, yeah, but the reality is that, you know, that's how important it is to these players and being unselfish and giving this team a chance to win. McKinnon sacrificed a memory that will never be forgotten for a. Uh, opportunity for his team to win a Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, I will always respect him for that. That is a true pro. And speaking of true pros, um, I retweeted a tweet, um, and, and I think we all need to learn uh, a lesson from these guys too. Uh, Jason Kelsey, uh, Dallas Goddard, um, Jalen Hurts, um, I think Bradbury. Yeah. Uh, they all went on there and the Philadelphia press and really most of the other media was trying to give them excuses and trying to lead them into blaming the call, the field, uh, all kinds of, and Sirianni was in it too. And they uh, refused to do that. And to me, that, that is a good sign for that Eagle organization. Uh, they're pros, man. That That is not easy to do because as human beings, we like to, you know, deflect and blame other people. If uh, something goes wrong, it's never our fault. Woe is me. And they were given the opportunity to do that, and they didn't. And, and I give them so much credit, and I have so much more respect for that organization and that team and that coach after what I saw on that tweet. If you haven't seen it, go to Granny 61 and I retweeted it. 
and there's about you know, about three or four minutes of questions being bombarded at these guys about the holding call, the field, whatever, and they just said, hey, listen, it never comes down to one play. Both teams have to play on the field. And, um, and by the way, uh, Frank, I think we need to get this out. I love George Toma uh, with all my heart. The guy has lived across the street from Bishop Meage for many, many years. Has helped out that school. Has helped me out. Um, he's it's a ceremonial position for for George. Okay, he goes out there. He's been he's in his nineties. There's a lot of people out there that are saying that you know, well, the Chiefs sent their uh, uh, you know uh, uh, ground. Uh, keeper out there and they he they purposely made the field soft because they knew Jalen Hurts was going to try to run the ball yada 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 um he had nothing to do with it <laughs> okay yeah. he has nothing to do with it I don't know you, you've been around George many years why don't you, give us your impression on what I mean he's taking a lot of flack out there well yeah he is because well I think the reason he's taking flack now we know he's the overseer and a lot of other guys do the work and they've been grooming this this grass outside of the State Farm Stadium there. Uh, they've been grooming it for like 18 months or something. It's been on its own separate pad, and they've been getting it ready strictly for the Super Bowl. And the, the week-in, week-out grass was rolled in and out on another pallet, and they brought this stuff in from California somewhere and whatever. They've been growing this grass for a long period of time. They shouldn't have been having any problems. The problem and the reason George Thomas taken a bunch of stuff is because – uh, earlier in the season, the very first game of the season, the Chiefs played the Cardinals out there, and that's where Butker got hurt, and guys were slipping and falling just like they were during, during the Super Bowl. And George came on and did an interview and said there's absolutely nothing wrong with this turf. There wasn't any uh, problem with the turf back in the opening game of the season for the Kansas City Chiefs. Butker's foot slipped out from underneath him because he didn't plan it right. And he went on the air, and that's what he talked about. And that's what got him in hot water with all the media and the way things happened. I think the painted part of the fields where there was paint down were really slick. They Everybody changed their shoes. You could see they showed a shot of it. Somebody took a photo of it. All the shoes, the original shoes they had on, were stacked up on one of those rolling boxes that they have. They were all stacked up on top of that box as everybody changed their shoes. And it still didn't help that much, so... It was uh, it was crazy. The turf was terrible, absolutely terrible. Yeah, the turf was terrible. And for everybody out there, um, there there's different kind of cleats. Obviously, uh, you have the molded cleat, right, uh, which is kind of a, a rubber, uh, hard rubber surface uh, that basically is lines the outside of the foot, and then it has some support in the middle to give you traction right that's folded and then you have the the studs for lack of a better term that's what we used to call them uh and there's different uh sizes uh you can yeah, have lengths of those of those cleats they screw into the bottom of your shoe that's the old school uh in fact you can't wear those i don't think in high school i don't think you can wear them in college anymore either but the pros still have them yeah so i mean you, you know i wore both um, and when I, if I was playing in that game, I would have chose the studs because I would have gone for a little longer, um, stud as long as, and you know, they're even in, you can wear them in high school, Frank, the, the, the issue is this, um, so there's a certain size that you cannot wear, uh, but nobody wears them anymore because there's very few grass fields. True. So, you know, in high school kids, what do you do? You, you go out and you, 
and you purchase your shoe that can work on both surfaces as much as possible. Most kids can't afford, you know, two or three pairs of shoes. It's not like they're, you know, issued shoes from the school. Right. Uh, college, they're obviously issued, uh, and most of them will use their molded or, or you know, the, the, uh, the AstroTurf or the sports turf shoe that works the best. And then, you know, when you have some grass fields, or the very few times you play in grass fields, most of the grass fields are cut so short uh, that it's almost like a turf, so you can get away wearing your molded. Uh, every once in a while now, when we went to Oakland in the Coliseum, you remember the Coliseum? Oh, God, yeah, that field surface was awful. Awful, absolutely awful. And it wasn't, it wasn't anything that the grounds crew did. Uh, there's two reasons. Number one, and the main reason, is because the, the field is below sea level. So it just the water uh, level and the water table is so close, and they've tried anything, everything and everything they could possibly do to, to try to take the moisture out of that field, and they just couldn't do it. And number two, it was a baseball field, too. So, uh, you know, some in the, early in the season, you'd have an infield that you were playing on with the grass. And then uh, later in the year when you played there, uh, they'd cover it up, but it was always loose because, I mean, it didn't have a chance to, you know, to gain its root system. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, you, you put on the, the longest cleat you could possibly put on. Uh, you know, there are positive and negatives to both. Uh, I found that if you wear the molded ones, your foot never got caught. Uh, and if you wore the, the studs or the longer cleats, uh, that your foot would get caught and you can cause injuries that way. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. They changed their shoes. They absolutely changed their shoes and probably went to some sort of stud or cleat or uh, that kind of uh, system in the second half. be interesting to ask somebody. If I get an opportunity to talk to them, I will. But, yeah, that, that was interesting. But I just want to, you know, hey, George, uh, um, you know, God bless him. I love the guy, uh, and he's a, a treasure in Kansas City. Taking a lot of flack. And, and, and his role is basically ceremonial. Now, I, listen, he still goes out there, and he still knows a ton, more than just about anybody would ever know about, you know, grass and turf and setting up a field. But, you know, the the Arizona Cardinals have a staff, and they are basically the ones in charge. So I just wanted to deflect a little bit of that because I know there's a lot of people out there, A, that are saying, though, well, the Chiefs sent their guy out there, and they set the field up for, for the for the Chiefs to win. And number two, and then they're blaming George Toma, who is a, um, a uh, expert at turf, uh, for something he really particularly didn't do. Yeah, yeah, I, I felt bad. I just I just wish he hadn't done the interview. That would have yeah. probably been just a little bit better for him. But everybody's asking about it, and he's he's the guy. And I know I saw one of the other uh, one of the other uh, turf managers on as well, uh, a younger guy, and the guy who was basically in charge of that field and getting him from California and everything. And they were doing all this pregame, of course, not postgame. And they just said, "Yeah, this is the best surface they'll play on, and everything's going to be fine." And it just wasn't. And the thing you worry about is somebody hurting themselves now you know Mahomes had to limp off there before halftime but somebody hurting themselves twisting a knee or whatever uh slipping on that turf that that is a you know that's really a critical thing you want these players to play on a stable as possible surface in order for these guys not to get hurt and you know ruin what are millions and millions of dollars worth of career for these young guys so that's uh, that's an important part too. So it's uh, it, it was an interesting little sidelight to the game, but it definitely had its impact. 
Now you can see guys slipping, sliding, changing spikes. Maybe in your brain you're thinking, you know, this turf ain't the greatest. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make this cut or not. You know, one of the wide receivers or whatever, even an offensive back. But uh, it all ended up pretty good for the Chiefs. Yeah. They win them. They win a Super Bowl. Philadelphia gets home and doesn't complain about things. You know, admits where they made mistakes and did the whole thing. So I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was a great game. I thought it was going to be a great game, and I was not disappointed. All right, Frank, we'll take a break here. We come back. I'm going to break down a little bit of how the Kansas City Chiefs offensive line did such a great job eliminating the best sack team in the league to pitch a shutout. And then, Frank, we need to talk a little bit, of course, about Patrick Mahomes and his legacy. And then a uh, we got a bunch of young guys, Frank. Uh, so it kind of reminds me of a song. Oh, Where do don't. You go? From here, Don't. now that all of our children are growing up. So where do we go from here? We have a bunch of young guys. Do we say goodbye to a couple of veteran guys? Because there's a lot of young guys that they got to sign and they got to, you know, keep happy on this team. And uh, the one thing that's consistent and constant in the NFL is turnover. And uh, so we'll talk about maybe some of the options the Chiefs will have with some of their veteran guys that may be gone because the younger guys are growing up. All right, I want to thank our friend CBD American Shaman. Great job by them. 30% off all stores, all products right now. Pop on in and get yourself some great CBD products from a Kansas City company because you're listening to Crunchtown. <laughs> All right, Kansas, Kansas City, welcome back to Crunch Time. It is Tim Grunout and Frank Bowl, our Super Bowl champion edition of Crunch Time. That has a nice ring to it. Certainly does. Uh, you know, the uh, third franchise, uh, Super Bowl in franchise history, second in four years for Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. And you want to talk about the offensive line. I know they allowed zero sacks, zero sacks against the highest sack team in the NFL this year. They were trying to go for a record. They needed four sacks in this game. The over-under in sacks at the casino, which I can tell you about later because I want some money, was uh, I think four and a half or five between the two teams, the total number of sacks in the game. I think the Chiefs had one on a busted running play uh, with Jalen Hurts of the Eagles, but between the two teams, they only had one. So the offensive line... Kansas City Chiefs, much maligned this year. Everybody chewing their fingernails before the game got started. They didn't have to worry about the offensive line. No, they didn't. And you got to give a lot of credit to uh, Andy Heck, the offensive line coach, and then Eric Bieniemy, and then Andy Reid. And I think probably in that order. Um, you know, Andy Heck put together a great game plan. We'll talk about what he did here in a second. Uh, Eric Bieniemy did a good job of – of uh, uh, facilitating and, and, and taking advantage of, of the protections and the things that they need to do to slow that defensive line down. And then, of course, Andy Reid, who uh, is the steward of all those uh, coaches, uh, did a great job of letting those guys coach, but yet um, uh, implementing the plays at the right time to help out that offensive line to go against this defensive line that really <laughs> was probably the second-best defensive line of all time. Uh, according to stats, we're right behind the 84 and 85 Bears that we just talked about. Uh, the, the Eagles had four guys with over 10 sacks, and uh, they had a, a guy, I believe, that had over 15 sacks. So a very good uh, defensive line against an offensive line that has passed protected pretty well this year. 
But, you know, you got a gimpy quarterback back there, and you know that uh, uh, they're going to try to get after him. So what did the Chiefs do? You know, we talked a little bit about turning protections last week and being able to get them out of a green uh, uh, attitude or a green uh, kind of uh, momentum, which green means that uh, they don't worry about anything but the pass rush. And there's a couple ways of getting them out of that. And the number one way is to run the football. And the Chiefs came out and ran the ball very well uh, the whole game. They did a good job of running some gap stuff. When I talk about gap stuff, I'm talking about power, which is when you pull the guard uh, around usually for the defensive end, or you can make the adjustment to go up to the front side linebacker, uh, or a counter, which is another gap play where you're pulling two guys, usually pulling the guard and maybe the tight end or the guard and the tackle. Uh, the guard will usually take the defensive end, and then the tackle or the tight end will fold around for that front side backer. And then you have trap plays, obviously, where the guard is trapping an inside guy, a defensive tackle, or a three technique, or even a one technique on a really tight inside trap. So the gap plays are basically cutting the defense at a point uh, on the line of scrimmage and then pulling guys to, uh, to clear out. Uh, from the double team. So you have the 600 on 300, and then you have guys pulling around to kick guys out. Why does that work? Uh, it works really well against aggressive defensive lines. Uh, aggressive defensive lines like to fly up the field in those green situations, that, that green attitude of getting after the quarterback. And you know they got frustrated because they weren't getting to the quarterback, so they even got more aggressive. And the Chiefs did a really nice job of taking advantage of the aggressiveness of the defensive line. And then they started to doubt themselves. Then they started to hesitate, which I always talk about. Hesitation will kill you in the NFL. Number two is Andy Reid did a great job, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, with the two-back system. And uh, one of the things that the Chiefs have implemented pass protection-wise most of the year, and they did not do it in this game, is what we call jet protection. Jet protection is when you turn weak. So you're responsible, if you're the offensive line, you're responsible for the four-down lineman and the will linebacker. The will linebacker is the weak backer to the formation. So if a tight end is on the right, the, the, the linebacker that is first to the weak side is the will backer, and then the mic backer is in the middle, and then obviously the Sam backer, the strong side backer is over the tight end. So most of the time during the year, the Chiefs did what we call a jet protection where they'll turn to the will backer. All right, and then sometimes they'll even turn and joker it to a safety or a corner if they feel like he's coming, but that turn protection goes weak. And when the turn protection goes weak, the back will go strong, and the back will check that Sam backer, right, or they'll double read to the Sam to the will, and uh, if nobody comes, he'll find his way out into a pass pattern. All right, well, the Chiefs did it exactly the opposite which was brilliant because one of the things that the Eagles did very, very well by watching their all 22 for the last couple of weeks, I was kind of watching, why is this defensive line so good? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, they had some really good guys that got to the second move quick, which is hard to do in the NFL. And number two is they slant strong a lot. All right. Slanting strong and they uh, get on angles on guys. And cause most teams like to turn uh, the, the protection weak which puts them kind of in a bad position because you're kind of turning away from the strength. You're turning away from where the defensive line's going. Well, the Chiefs did a really good job because what they did is they set up McKinnon on the right side. Let's just say it's, uh, they called it three-jet, all right? So three-jet would be turning it if you, because you're always going uh, to the weak side and jet protection, unless you make this adjustment. And I'm not sure exactly what the adjustment call was, 
But what they did is they turned the protection strong. All right, they turned they had the turn protection strong, so they turned it to where the running back was or where the tight end was. Well, you're saying, well, why would they do that if they had their help on that strong side? If they had a tight end over there to help out, why are you turning towards uh, the place that you have help? Well, Andy Reid and Andy Hack and Eric Bieniemy did a really good job, Frank, of taking the back and the tight end and bringing them on the snap across the formation to help out weak. So they set them up. They set them up because the Chiefs have been so uh, tendency-wise turning weak that they started to turn strong, so they were turning right into where the protection was. So that was the number two thing. And number three thing, the Chiefs just won the individual one-on-one battle. And, you know, every once in a while you can have all the great schemes, you can have all the great plays and all the great setups, but if you don't win that individual battle, you're going to lose the, uh, the game, and the Chiefs won that. So they ran the ball well. They tricked him a little bit with turning the protection the opposite way they usually turn it to, and they won the individual battles. Really good job by the offensive line. Yeah, really, and they, uh, they rushed the ball very well, too. That was very important. Um, sometimes Andy has tendency to get away from that pretty quickly, but he used it to his advantage, you know, let alone the Eagles who were rushing the ball. And I think uh, we figured it out between penalty and just going for it. The, uh, the Eagles made – 15 out of 19 third and shorts uh, by that that quarterback sneak that they run so well. Tim, that is old school football, right? That getting down the lowest pad wins. Jason Kelsey is a monster, was a monster at center. They blew the Chiefs defensive line off the line scrimmage on those plays. That was unbelievable. Believable. When you saw Chris Jones go for a ride like he was on top of a wave, I went, oh, my God. That was – what they did there was incredible. And uh, But even though they come up with, you know, that kind of percentage on their third and shorts and fourth and shorts, the Chiefs still managed to, to win that football game. And I think a lot of that rises on the, uh, the will and the heart of Patrick Mahomes, who looked like he was really injured at halftime, came out the second half, gutted it out, made another big running play, and, uh, you know, just put this team on his back once again. Yeah, and, you know, just for everybody, it's ugly in there on those uh, quarterback sneaks. And I know Jason Kelsey has commented on his podcast with his brother that every time they call a quarterback sneak, he walks up to the line saying he hates his life. I hate my life. I hate this. And it is brutal. It is brutal, and and one of the things that 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 you have to learn to do as a center, first of all, and and I have a little bit of experience in this in this area. Really, I didn't yeah. know that. <clears throat> so, you know, the first thing I mean, obviously, the snap is so important. Okay, and that's always the first thing that has to go through your mind. Hey, you got to get the snap up because if you forget about the snap, or you take the snap for granted, you see what happened in Buffalo against the Vikings, right? Where they fumbled the ball and a quarterback sneaked on the one-yard line to win the football game, and they lost because, and I'm not picking on Mitch because I love Mitch, and I don't know if it was even Mitch's fault, but between the quarterback and the center, uh, they forgot about the snap. So, Jason Kelsey, the first thing that's going through his mind is, I got to get the snap up. Now, remember, you are a one-armed man for that first half a second, right? You are a one-armed man. So, you have this ability, all the good ones do, is you have this ability to find a, a flex point in your knees that you can get, you, you snap it and you got to dip really quick 
and you got to get your your body down, and you got to go from low to high through the guy in front of you, which is really hard to do because those defensive linemen are trying to get under you. And if they get under you, that's when you lose. And if they do get under you, you got to go what we call the pitch fork, where you throw your arms underneath and you just keep running your legs and you just kind of try to turn them like you're turning a pancake yeah. <laughs> on the grill. Yeah. Right? you got to flip them, flip them out of there. So uh, that is a very, very difficult thing to do. But the number one thing is the snap. Number two is you got to get low. And number three, and probably the most important thing, and Jason does an unbelievable job of this, and most great centers do, you can't stop your feet. I don't care if you're not going anywhere. I don't care if your feet are in the air. You kick them like you're doing a calisthenic. You keep your feet moving. That is the key. Uh, and you can tell those guys work on that and do a good job of that because they get low and their feet keep moving. And the next thing you know, I mean, there's, there's times, Frank, where it looked like Jalen Hurt was going to get stopped. And because the feet were moving and because there's momentum still going forward, he was able to get another six, eight inches. Oh, yeah, and that's all he needed. Yeah. And that's all he needed. And, yeah. but, I, but, let's, but let's, let's not forget about the one thing that really worried me. Well, there's a lot of things that worried me. But one of the things that worried me was the third down and short situation for the Chiefs. And they converted all those, man. That was really good. They did a good job against a Greek Jets defensive line of converting their third downs, too. Yeah, they did. They really did. Oh, great. Real quick, we only have a couple minutes here. Um, everybody says, hey, the Chiefs of Dynasty now. They won two. They've had five straight AFC Championship games at home. They've won a couple Super Bowls here. Where do you stand with the Dynasty talk? Yeah, I think it's, it's still early. Um, you know, I think two is is – Listen, I won zero. So for me to say, well, the Chiefs only won two. <laughs> I mean, that sounds weird. Let's not get carried away. Uh, the Chiefs have won two. You get to, in the rarefied era when you start getting three, four, and five. Um, I think the Chiefs are, are on their way to being a dynasty. Um, if, it, if it ends now and they never win another Super Bowl, I don't think you can consider it a dynasty. I think if you win one more, I think that you, you fall into where the Dallas Cowboys were. Uh, I think the Raiders win three. Raiders won three. Um, and then you get into where the Patriots have won like five or six. And then you get into – Well, you got the Steelers have won six. Uh, Patriots won six. Yeah. So th- those those are dynamic. I think, you know, I was on yesterday with the guys on Mad Dog uh, Radio, and uh, they asked, hey, is this a dynasty? And, and I, it's the same thing. I said the same thing. You know – this is this. They are on the cusp of being a dynasty, and every generation of, of football has a dynasty. Right. And I'm glad that the Chiefs are right now uh, sitting on the top of the ability to be a dynasty. Uh, you know, they play uh, all. They, you know, right now they're favored to win next year again and go to the Super Bowl again. It's in Las Vegas. Frankie made a great point yesterday as we kind of visited. That's nothing but Arrowhead West for us. That's right. So. Uh, yeah, uh, this is a team that is on the cusp of being a dynasty. Patrick Mahomes, two seasons MVP, two seasons Super Bowl MVP, five Pro Bowls, five All-Pros, led the league in passing multiple times. There's a guy, if he retires right now, which he's not going to, but if he retire right now, he'd be a first ballot Hall of Famer. There you go. That's the bottom line right now. And you read, of course, will be a first ballot Hall of Famer as well. Tim, appreciate it. I'm going to... Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. Talk to Donna Woolard here. Coming up, we're going to talk about Day 58. has a lot to do with the uh, Third and Long Foundation, so we'll be back with that. You are listening to Blitz Time. 
All right, welcome back to Crunch Time. Frank Bow here bringing on my good friend and the wife of my very good friend, Donna Woolard, Jamie's wife. And I know just back from an exciting time in Arizona, got to see some golf, got to see the Chiefs win their second Super Bowl in four years. Donna, you are riding a wave right now, aren't you? Uh, I would say yes. Pretty special year, (laughs) totally. But that was an amazing week. And I tell you what, I said early on, when we were playing Arizona in the beginning of the year, that we would be back here. Isn't that funny? First and last game of the year. That was absolutely perfect. Perfect prediction, right? Right. Okay. We're also riding a wave of third and long right now, and we're talking about day 58. Explain to everyone what day 58 is. It comes up on February 27th. Well, about three years ago, Um, We do a lot of fundraisers. We've been raising money now for 33 years for our foundation. And Derek's memory, we decided that we wanted to do something uh, in Black History Month of February. And uh, we thought, what a better way than to donate, uh, dedicate everything to him. Uh, Of course, you know, he just passed 23 years ago last week. Right. And uh, we decided to do it through social media. We decided to do something different. And this year we made it even more specific because, uh, all the funds that we have donated to our foundation, all through social media, or you can do it just especially right through our uh, website. But we've asked individuals to donate in Derek's memory, uh, who's been gone 23 years. But, man, is he significant now? And I just want to say this. In Arizona, I saw hundreds of 58 jerseys. I actually interviewed and talked with many and told them about Day 58 and what we were doing. And I had a gentleman who literally went on his website sitting with me at the 16th hole and donated $58.58 in Derek's memory. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I said, this year, all the funds we specifically said will go to all the students' uh, books, supplies, uh, field trips. We're going on one February 23rd to see Cinderella. Anything that that helps those kids on a weekly basis, yearly basis, all funds go to that. And it was all in Derek's memory. Yeah, and right. So yeah, and it's all for him. And you could donate $58, $580, $5,800, $58,000. Do whatever you right. want in terms of 58 But you can also give smaller denominations. So I'll go uh, to the great uh, program, the Day 58 program, for all those kids. And we're talking with Donna Woolard. She's one of the program directors down there at Third and Long that does such great, great work. And... Uh, so that's uh, how are things going so far? Right now, we've just gotten started a week ago, and I know that we've had several thousand donated. I haven't seen the numbers. I've been out of town, uh, but we're posting it on all of our social media. And all I want individuals to know is that Frank's right. Fifty-eight cents, five dollars eighty cents. It doesn't matter. But if this is what I want people to remember: if you ever watched a game he played in, if you ever. Uh, got to meet him. If you ever got to watch him play, just go back and and remember what it was that it was such a delight to our city, and he meant so much. This foundation was his baby, and it was his dream when he came to the city to start something for kids nine to thirteen to sack illiteracy. And we just want you to do whatever you can do and pass the word along. Go to our website, click the Day Fifty Eight button, and donate whatever you can. Every penny counts. And you'll do it because you love him and you love our kids. That's right. Go to the Third and Long website. Donate to uh, Derek Thomas and Day 58. Donna, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. And uh, God bless. And 58, keep watching over us. Thank you so much.
That's right. Thanks, everyone. You're listening to Crunch Time.